Okay, good morning everyone. Okay, it's uh, really good to see all of you here today and I really hope that you are up to concentrating on today's sermon because it is something which I feel is very important, perhaps even uh, the most important sermon that you will hear for a long time in your life. And uh, I just uh, hope that uh, we, God will help us to really strike our hearts by uh, what we were listening today. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you that you have sent us Jesus, and we thank you that you have sent us your word, and that through your word you communicate clearly to us your will. And we pray that uh, indeed as we come to your word, we will, as we have read today in Isaiah, to come humbly before you and to tremble at your word, and to listen clearly to what you are saying. And we pray that we will do this all of our lives and not be seduced and tossed about by the teachings of this world. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things I learned as a very young Christian was that not everyone who uses the word Jesus is a Christian. Not everyone who says the word Amen in a sermon is right. And not everyone who teaches from the Bible speaks the word of God. Equally true is when you buy a book from a bookshop, just because it's from a Christian bookshop, just because it quotes the Bible, just because the author is a PhD doctor or lecturer from a seminary, is it necessarily speaking the words of God? And I learned this as a very young Christian, and that's why I find it shocking even today when I speak to many, many Christians, and they don't realize uh, what these lessons are about. So I remember speaking about uh, this issue to an elder of another church. And he said, I don't think there are different ways of reading the Bible. People just have different styles of reading the Bible. You know, different churches and different Christians have different styles. So the first question I want to ask you, I've got lots of slides today, so I've got to ask Chong to be on the ball. Okay, The first question I want you to consider today very seriously is, do you really believe that they are right and wrong ways of reading the Bible. Have you ever really considered that question? Do you believe that there are right ways of reading the Bible, and that there are wrong ways of reading the Bible? And there is a life and death aspect to this question as no other. And not just life and death in this world, but eternal life, eternal death, eternal salvation, eternal judgment, implications to how we answer this question. But amazingly, many Christians have never actually thought through this question. They just assume that because I have the Bible, it doesn't matter how I read it, it doesn't matter how other people read it, it makes it okay, it's just different styles of reading the Bible. But I want to say that there is absolutely no truth in that. There are wrong ways of reading the Bible and there are right ways of reading the Bible. If you read the Bible wrongly, it actually leads you away from God, not towards God. It leads you towards sin rather than salvation. It can lead you away from God to judgment. Now, I think the most famous example of this is the passage that we read for our responsive reading. So if you look up here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 to 7, right, do you remember how did Satan tempt Jesus? How did Satan deceive Jesus in the 40 days in the desert? Well, one of the tests, as we read in the Bible, was when Satan quoted 
scripture, when Satan quoted God's word directly. And this is actually from Psalm chapter 91, verse 11 to 12. But yet, Satan twisted God's word in order to tempt Jesus to sin, to do something against God's will. And that was because Satan was using the wrong way of reading the Bible. He was misusing and abusing the Bible. So the first lesson that I want to... We will look at this passage again. Don't worry, you, you might want to ask how Satan did it. Right? But the first lesson I'd like to, to really get us to focus on is that there are wrong ways of reading the Bible and there are right ways of reading the Bible. And it would be naive and foolish to believe that every way of reading the Bible is correct and right. So if you look in your bulletin, um, in the outline, I'm, only, I'm really only going to focus on two uh, aspects to this week because there are many, many points that I could focus on. Uh, but I chose these two because I feel that they are most relevant in the current world that we live in. And the first point is, do we read the Bible sincerely trying to find out the author's intention or are we proof texting? Okay, so there is a difference because when I sit under God's word and I'm trying to ask myself, what is God saying to the author? What is the intention of the author? It's very different from me getting God's word and trying to shape it so that it will say something that I want it to say. Okay, so um, I'm going to show you what I experienced when I visited. Uh, during my holidays, I, I go to various churches. So I went to a Prosperity Gospel Church many years ago. So uh, I, I think Y is a perfect candidate for this. So whenever I say Amen, I want you to say Amen after me, okay? Okay, because okay, Y will do it well. I, I'm very confident that Y will do it well, okay? So this is a sermon I heard many, many years ago when I went to this Prosperity Gospel Church. So, okay, I'll just flash it up. So I went to this church. It was around Christmas time. And the pastor was saying, you know... God wants to bless you. Amen. Okay. All right. God wants to make you rich. Yes. Yes. Okay. And how do we know that? Because God blessed the territory for Jabez. Look up here. Look at what it says there. Okay. So look at what it says there. Jabez prayed to God that God would extend his and enlarge his territory. And he did. And not only that, God says that he will bless you a hundred times. How generous you are. Okay, look what it says next in Matthew. Right? God says that He will give you 160 and 30 times what it was sown. And in fact, God says that if you are generous, God will be even more generous to you. Okay, next one, next one. Okay? So it says there, if you are generous to God, God will be even more generous to you. Okay, now you, you can uh, turn it off, right? Okay? <laughs> So this was Christmas time, and this pastor said, have you been blessed this year? If you haven't been blessed, it's because you haven't been generous enough. But it's not too late, because it's still only one week before the year is up. And if you would be generous to God, this is the time where God will be doubly generous to you, because it's Christmas time. So today, I want you to give even more, because God will bless you. Now, this is the wrong way of reading the Bible because this is what is called proof texting. Right? You have a message and you're looking for parts of the Bible to prove your message. That's why it's called proof texting. Right? You already have the message, you already have your agenda, and you're trying to find verses or sentences in the Bible which will back up what you're trying to say. 
And I think that what really got me very angry at this church was, not only did they blatantly just misuse the Bible, but they even used different versions of the Bible, which would be more suitable for what their message was. So one minute they were using the NIV, next minute using the Good News Bible, next minute they are using the Living Bible. Now this is very dangerous because this is exactly what Satan did when he tempted Jesus. So if we go back to the Matthew passage again, let's look at what Satan did, okay? So Satan took Jesus and he took him up to the highest point of the temple and he said, if you are the son of man, throw yourself down. And then he quoted from scripture, he said, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift, up your, their, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what did Satan say that the Bible was promising? Satan was saying that the Bible promised that no matter what we do, God will protect us. God would protect Jesus. Just throw yourself off the temple and God would save him. But is that what God's word was really saying? Is that proof texting or is that understanding the author's intent? Because if you go back to the original quote, look at what it says in Psalm 91. Look at what it says. It says, If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So let's compare what Psalm 91 says with what Satan quoted Jesus. So the, the parts in red are what was actually the original quote and the, the one on the right is what Satan quoted. You see that Satan actually uses the text to prove his point, but he actually misses out and leaves out the inconvenient truth, which is God was promising that if you make God your refuge, make God your dwelling, if you follow God in your ways, then God will protect you. Right? That is the message. That, that was the intention of God through the psalmist to communicate to us. But Satan twisted it by saying, well, God will protect you in any way, whatever you do, even if you do something which is against God's will. That's the very definition of proof texting, you see. Rather than actually going to God's word and hearing his original message, we twist God's word to shape it and mold it to what we want it to say. And that's exactly what Satan was doing here. So our starting point must never be what we want God's word to say, but to humbly come before God's word and asking ourselves, what is the author's intention? What is God's intention through the messenger here? And that's hard work. Right? In Isaiah chapter 66, which is the passage that Pokim read to us, it says very clearly, right, God was, uh, we're not going to spend the whole day looking at Isaiah 66 because it's a very dense passage, but basically God is saying, look, you can worship me all you like, but if you don't come before my word, if you don't hear my word, if you don't listen to my word, then you are actually not worshipping me correctly and you are not my people. 
So the attitude that we must have is the one who is humble, who is contrite in spirit and trembles before God's word and who listens to God's word. Not someone who sits over God's word and tries to to shape God's word to what we want it to say. The problem is that it's much easier to listen to a sermon or read a commentary or a book because it's so much easier. Someone seems to have done all the hard work. It's much harder for us to sit there and to read God's word and to ask, you know, how does this verse fit within the passage? Uh, How does the passage fit within the chapter? How does the chapter fit within the book? But all those things are necessary because we need to understand what is the author's intention? What is God saying through the writer? Now, I want to really warn you today in the strongest terms that if you don't do the hard work of understanding what the author's intention is, and you allow someone else to do it, and you take shortcuts, it will lead you to terrible places, which actually may take you very far away from God. So I I went to uh, this person's uh, church, and in this person's church, they made this really startling statement, which I found unbelievable. They said, there is no such thing as repentance in the Bible. No such thing as repentance. And uh, what they meant was, as they explained in the sermon, was that you just have to come to God as you are and God will accept you and you don't have to change at all. No change required. And how they proved that from using God's word was they went to Luke chapter 15. So Luke chapter 15 is the chapter on the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Okay, so for those of you who might remember, that's you know where uh, God is compared to to the, the, the shepherd who leaves the hundred sheep to go and look for the lost sheep. God is compared to the woman who loses one coin out of the ten, and she goes to look for the, the coin, right? So, oh, you know, I've got to go back to the pictures. The pictures look good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so what this person said was, you see, you see. There is no repentance in the Bible because the sheep cannot repent and the coin cannot repent. All you need in the Bible is for us to be like the lost sheep and to let God carry us on His shoulder. Or to be like the lost coin where God finds us and picks us up. You see, there's no repentance in the Bible. Amen. Right? But is that really true, you see? Is, there, is that really true that there is no repentance in the Bible? That means you don't have to change anything. When you come to God, God will just accept you like the lost sheep or pick you up like the lost coin. You see, if you do the hard work and you look at the Bible and you even happen to just turn to Luke chapter 15 where the preacher was preaching from, you will notice that actually... Within Luke chapter 15 comes a series of three parables. Not just the two parables, but three parables. And the three parables are sort of all complementary together. Right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the, the prodigal son. Now, the prodigal son is a perfect example of repentance. Because the prodigal son 
after he runs away from the father, takes his inheritance, what does he do? He turns back 180 degrees and comes back to the father. He turns away from running away from God and living his uh, life of debauchery and sinfulness. Well, isn't that a picture of repentance? That is repentance. But obviously, uh, I can't speak for the preacher, whether they deliberately left it out or whether they made a mistake, but, but they were not sitting under God's word and asking themselves, what is God's word really saying? But rather, they were just making a statement. And, and it made me really sad because all those people in that church, thousands of people really believe that to come to God, you don't need to repent. But the Bible never says that. The Bible says that, you know, they are to repent and to come back to God through Jesus. Now, I'll give you another uh, very dangerous thing that we just came across recently. And um, this is one of the struggles that we had and why we, we couldn't work with uh, the, the HOS in Batam anymore because they were subscribing to this new teaching. But if you Google it, there's this new seminars in Singapore by these people called the Kingdom Invasion. Okay, Kingdom Invasion. And uh, I listened uh, on the internet to one of the sermons by the pastor who started this Kingdom Invasion. And he, he was saying that actually God doesn't want you to pray for healing. He wants you to do the healing in fact, by praying for healing, you are actually being disobedient because you are actually not doing what God wants you to do, which is to heal. We shouldn't be praying for miracles. God wants us to do the miracles. So, how does he show this? Well, in the next slide, in uh, Luke chapter 8, uh, this is the, um, the miracle of the, of the storm where Jesus calms the storm. The disciples obviously were in the boat, right? And remember Jesus was sleeping in the boat and then the, the storm was coming and they thought they were going to die. So Jesus uh, was sleeping and the disciples went to him and woke him and saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. To which the pastor, the kingdom invasion then said, See, where is your faith? Why are you still praying for healing when you should be doing the healing? Why are you praying for miracles when you should be doing the miracles? We should be doing these things. That's why God was rebuking the disciples and God will rebuke us. Now, is that really the author's intention in telling us this story, this historical account of Jesus calming the storm? Is it really his intention so that we all would go out there to calm storms, to heal people, to do miracles. Well, again, next slide. The, uh, the preacher left out something quite important at the end. Right? Because at the end, it says, In fear and amazement, they ask one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. See, that will tell us that actually we, in a way, are meant to ask this question, who is this? What authority does Jesus have? Uh, the intention of the author is not for us to go and do what Jesus is doing, but to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? 
Because right at the very beginning of Luke, if we read the whole book of Luke and we take the trouble to read it and to understand what is the intention of the author, the intention of God, we will see right from chapter 1, it says the intention is, right? It was the intention all along was so that people may know the certainty of the things that they have been taught. And actually, if we, try, if we take the trouble once again to read the chapter, uh, next slide, we will see that actually there were three accounts of Jesus doing great miracles, calming the storm in 8, 22-25, Jesus casting out that powerful demon, remember that demoniac called Legion, many, many leg- uh, demons in him, and 40-56, to which is Jesus raising the dead woman and curing the sick girl. So actually what Jesus was doing, if you can click three times, right, was to show, uh, and then he also, was to show his power over the different realms. Uh, natural realm, the demonic realm, and sickness and death. So this man, the, the person from the kingdom invasion, was actually doing us a great disservice. Could you imagine if you're sitting there listening to this sermon at the kingdom invasion, thinking now, that you need to go out there and heal people and to do miracles and uh, to, to do all sorts of things. And, and that's what God expected of you. And if you couldn't do it, there was something wrong with you. See, that's the danger of proof texting. Just looking at that one text and then going off and having all sorts of ab- random applications. Now, that's one of the problems fundamentally, or proof texting, is the randomness of the applications because you're never asking yourself, what is God telling me? What is the author's intention? You know, And actually taking the trouble and studying and trying to find out what is God really saying through Luke or through Paul or through Peter. So I remember my son came back from school one day and he, he told me this really f- funny uh, uh, sermon that he heard at school. And uh, it, it was, it was, he had five applications, but I can only remember three. So I, I have to ask him what the other five were. But they were so striking, it still sticks with me, even he's finished school already. He told me that at school today, uh, the, 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 we had this uh, uh, guy giving the sermon on David and Goliath. All right, okay, so next slide. So you know, you all remember David and Goliath, right? And uh, how David was a young boy and he used the... the the sling, and then you hit the stone, the guy's head. You know, it's such a powerful story. But anyway, apparently it was, um, it was before the exams, and the, the pastor was using David and Goliath to, to try to encourage the kids. So he said, you know, the first thing, David was a shepherd boy. So he spent many hours looking after the sheep. He would spend time at night looking after the sheep. And uh, that's why David was so spiritual. So what's the lesson? must love nature. We must go out there and love nature because in nature, through nature, we become very spiritual. Then the second lesson was, you know, Saul wanted to give David his armor. But you know what happened? David didn't want his armor, didn't want the king's armor. You know what the lesson is? You've got to be your own person. You've got to be your own person. You can't wear other people's armor. You can't fulfill other people's expectations. Be your own person. And then, David, of course, fought, you know, got the five stones from the stream, right, to, to get 
into the sling to kill Goliath. So, you know, before your exam, you have to have those five stones. Hard work, perseverance, diligence, optimism, and trust in God. See, one of the problems is that if you don't actually ask yourself, what is the intention of the author? Why are we told this story? We can have all sorts of random applications which just sort of just come out from anywhere. So, you know, love nature because David was a shepherd boy. Be yourself because David didn't want to wear the armor. Get the five stones so you can pass the exam. Because, you know, Goliath is the, is the O-levels, o right? He's the big, the big, the big, the big, uh, the big enemy for the, for, the, for the boys. But the thing is, is that what God really intends for us to get out of this? Is that His intention in telling us the story? How does it fit in the whole of the story? Well, in Samuel, in the earlier parts, we were really told in preparation for David and Goliath why this happened. Why was David able to defeat Goliath? Is it because he was a shepherd boy? Is it because he was his own person? Is it because he had those five stones? No. See, in chapter 16, the Lord had already said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, and Samuel went on to Ramah. See, this is the intention. When we read the David and Goliath story, we're not meant to see, oh, David, David, David. We're meant to see God fulfilling his power and plan through David to fulfill his intentions. See, that's what we are meant to see. This is how it is to humbly sit under God's word and to hear what he's saying. You know, what I'm saying actually is very, very, uh, I guess, repulsive to the modern world. Because in the modern world, we don't want to hear what the author is saying. The author is unimportant. So, let me give you an example why the modern world doesn't really care what the author is saying. So, I remember reading a movie review, and uh, I was watching this very complicated movie called Memento, right? So, I was, I was having trouble understanding it. So, I went to try to understand it on the internet, and then people said, it doesn't matter what the director was trying to do, this is how I understood it, and that's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that matters. I remember when I was in Australia... I was having uh, dinner with two very educated doctors. One was a surgeon, one was an anesthetist. So apparently, they, they're, they're, they're atheists and they go to a book club. So they read all sorts of books. Like you're assigned to read a book and they get together and they discuss it. And this guy was saying, oh, you know, it's so interesting because every time we get together, everybody has a different meaning or understanding from the book. But it doesn't matter because we just share one another. We never, we're not meant to rebuke one another. Right? We just share. So I said to him, I said, is that really possible? You mean you all read the same book and you all come to different conclusions and different meanings and different understanding and it's all okay? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, let's say, so I gave him this real illustration. I said, okay, next book. Sorry, next slide. Okay, so I'm sure some of you have heard this book called To Kill a Mockingbird, right? I mean, if, if you, I don't know whether you still study at school, but it's a very, very, like, uh, 
uh, important book in, in, in history because it's about uh, the civil rights movement and this guy, this lawyer who stands up you know, to, the, to racism and bigotry. So the hero, for those of you in the older generation, you all know this is Gregory Peck, right? Okay. So he's the hero of the, 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 the movie. He's the hero in the book. He's the, the lawyer who stands up against the small town attitudes to protect the black man. So I said to these two doctors, I said, so can you imagine if you read this book and you know that the author is saying that he is the hero, can you believe after reading the book that he is the villain and the bad guy? Would that be okay? And to my great, I guess, surprise, the doctor guy said, yes, it's okay. You can read the book and believe that he is the bad guy even though the author is trying to portray him as the good guy. Because all that matters is how I understand it for myself. But you can't approach the Bible that way. You cannot approach the Bible that way. You cannot say, I just want to read the Bible for however I want to read it and get whatever meaning I want to get out of it because it is God's Word. You need to sit under God's Word, tremble under God's Word, and to say, what does God want to tell me, not what I want to tell God. Now, there's another point which uh, I, I'm going to ask you for another 10 minutes because I think this is very important. Is In some of the books that I've read recently, it's this thing called, next slide, the, 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 the difference between historical reconstruction and plain reading of the Bible. Okay, so historical reconstruction and plain reading are two very different things. So I think we will all agree that understanding history, understanding culture, understanding geography are all very helpful things to help us understand God's Word better. So you remember when we, Revelation chapter 3? So we read about the church in Laodicea, and we read about how God is going to spit them out because they are neither hot nor cold. They are lukewarm. I think it's helpful when we understand the history and geography to know that the, the city of Laodicea had no water of its own, so they had to pipe it through all these aqueducts, and then by the time it got to the city, it was very... Uh, foul tasting and it was very hot and it wasn't very nice, right? Because then it gives us some sort of appreciation of what the Bible is saying to the church in Laodicea. Uh, in John chapter 13, where we read about how, you know, Jesus is reclining and, and, and talking to Simon Peter, it's helpful for us to see that in the ancient world, people didn't sit down in chairs to eat meals. They lay down like Greek people and then they ate, right? So that's how they ate. But I want to warn you that over the last few decades, there's a very new and dangerous way of reading the Bible, which is historical reconstruction. Okay, Historical reconstruction basically says that as we understand more and more history, it changes our understanding of the Bible. Instead of understanding the Bible for what it's really saying, I'm using history to limit or to change what the Bible is saying. So, um, especially in the areas of gender equality, sexuality, and another area which I'll show you, uh, people are trying to historically reconstruct what the Bible is saying. So I was reading this book recently, uh, The Hard Sayings of Paul. 
And uh, it was talking about 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, so 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 are the controversial passages which speak about uh, male headship in church and, and not women uh, teaching and things like that. So as I was reading this book, I realized, I realized after a while that the, the author stopped commentating on what the Bible was saying, but he started telling me more and more about what the history was of Corinth. And basically what he said was, well, the situation in Timothy's time and in Corinth was that they were very, very rowdy women. Right? These women were like, were like, uh, like extreme women who were very violent and rowdy and, and, and you know, very disruptive in church. I, d- I don't know what he had in mind. But, and therefore, that's why uh, Paul wrote in Timothy and Corinthians to shut these women up because they were really rowdy and disruptive in church. And therefore, his conclusion was, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, they're unimportant now, because we don't have rowdy women in church anymore, right? We're all very civilized now. And that's what historical reconstruction does, you see. It's like, it basically tells you this is a historical situation, therefore, this situation is limited, not really relevant, or it's, 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 you know, it somehow changes or ignores what the Bible says. What about this? Next slide. What does this passage say? Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Okay, uh, the word lies here is not like you're lying in a hammock, right? Lying means having sex, okay? Now when we read this passage, it seems really clear. Now, what else could it mean? Don't have sex with a man just as a man has sex with a woman in marriage, right? I mean, what else could it mean? Well, uh, the person, I've read commentaries which say, oh, you know, actually, what's really in view here is, 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 is idolatry. You know, because, because you know the neighbors of Israel, they had a lot of temple prostitution uh, between men and men. So, actually, what God is really saying here is not about, you know, homosexuality as a whole. It's just talking about temple prostitution, where people went to the temple and they paid uh, prostitutes to have sex as part of their, their, their worship of God. Anyway, nobody does that anymore, right? Who goes to the temple to pay prostitutes to have sex to worship God? So, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, ah, yeah, irrelevant now, right? Because... Nobody goes to the temple to pay prostitutes to have sex. Right? Okay, then what about the next passage? In Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians, it says, you know, don't be a homosexual offender. Uh, and God was angry with people who had natural relations with men and, men and women and women. But then you read commentaries. If you go and look at commentaries, some of them will say, oh, you know, actually what Romans and Corinthians were talking about was, you know, in that time... Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks, they had this practice of, uh, you know, having sex between men and boys, like uh, between like, uh, like the tutors and the, and the students, or between male prostitution. So that's actually what, what was being criticized here. It was prostitution and uh, having sex between men and boys. Well, you know, that's very unjust, that sort of sex, because, you know, it's very... Uh, you know, when you pay someone for sex, it's very degrading. And then the men, when they have sex with boys, it's very, it's very a power problem. That's what the Bible is talking about. 
but you, you can see how that actually limits what the Bible is saying, right? Because then it's not about homosexuality as an act as a whole, but just prostitution and, uh, and sex between adults and, and children. Now I want to say that historical reconstruction is a very, very dangerous way of reading the Bible. Because you're not letting God speak clearly, but trying to limit or ignore what God is saying. So the first point is, as I learned in Bible college, is the burden of proof. If you want to reconstruct history, the burden of proof is on you. Right? You must have very good proof to be able to show that your reconstruction 2,000 years ago is very, very strong. Because, can you imagine, you're trying to say with great accuracy what happened 2,000 years ago in a place far, far away, in a culture which is very, very different, where you have no source documents apart from the Bible, basically. It's a bit like saying, okay, imagine there is four, it's now 40,016 AD, and somebody living in Europe is trying to figure out what is happening at BTPC with no notes. I mean, that's effectively what you're trying to do with great accuracy, right? And the other problem is, if, if the, the first problem is the, the, the great burden of proof to be able to show with certainty that's the situation then. The second problem is, 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 okay, this is very technical, right? But it's that in every culture and every time, various people struggle with various things and believe different things. Can you really say that the problem in the Jewish times was just male prostitution in temple worship as part of worshipping God. Can you really say that's the problem of every single Jewish people who lived like 4,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago? It's very difficult to say that, right? It's just like saying, can we go out to ask every Christian living in Singapore, what is your view of Jesus Christ? Will everybody give you the same answer? If you went to ask every Christian person living in Singapore, what is your struggle with sex? Can they give you the same answer? They can't. So in the same way, when you say, oh, you know, the Jewish Christians, they only struggle with temple prostitution. And the people in the Romans uh, and Corinth time, they only struggle with the problem of Greek culture, of men and boys' sex and uh, male prostitution. You can't. Because... People don't all believe and struggle with the same things. See, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah was not male prostitution and temple worship. It was straight out homosexuality, people struggling with sex. So there's always a variety of people struggling with different things. You can't say there is just one thing, and therefore the Bible is just dealing with one problem alone, which is a very limited thing. And the third problem is, it is only very recently in the last few decades that people are starting to view the Bible and trying to reconstruct history. And why are they now doing it? Is it not because in the culture and time that we live in, we struggle with gender equality and sexual equality? So there is that motivation in society to try to reconstruct history so that the Bible will become more in line with what our culture and time says. Now, if you thought that uh, gender 
and sex were just the only problems. Well, I want to tell you that there is another problem. And uh, this is the problem. Okay, this is called the next slide. Many of you probably will not have heard it, and uh, it's okay. It's probably good that you haven't heard of it. It's called the New Perspective on Paul, but it is already here in churches in Singapore. A uh, pastor in one of the one of the larger Presbyterian churches in Singapore was, was sharing with me how he was having problems with one of the Bible study leaders in his church who was adopting this new belief called the New Perspective on Paul. Again, this is a historical reconstruction. So as Christians, what is our most important belief? I think we would say salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. I think that I mean many of us will agree that is one of the most important beliefs that we have. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. So what uh, the new perspective on Paul says is that they try to reconstruct history by saying actually the Jews never actually believed they could be saved by works or the law alone. They only believed that these works or the law were like badges of the covenant community or Jewish privilege. So what Romans and Galatians and all that stuff is all about is to rebuke the Jewish people for holding on to these law markers and excluding the Gentiles. But what happens then is logically once you say that the main problem is not salvation by works alone, and it's by Jewish people just holding these on these things on to exclude the Gentiles, is that when you read the Bible, you lose justification by faith alone. You lose the cross, you lose the problem of sin. And that is exactly what is happening in much of uh, academia and in the churches in the West. Once you reconstruct Romans and Galatians and you lose justification by faith alone, then you actually lose Jesus Christ and the cross. So if you look up here, there are many, many books, articles. This is just some sample that I've got from the internet. Okay? So, uh, here's a... Um, okay, so next slide. Now the problem is... Um, actually, I should put some blank slides on because if not, you, you, you know what I'm going to say already. The, the problem is, can you really say... Oh, that's good, thank you. Can you really say that the Jewish people in the past didn't believe that they were being saved by the law, but by works alone. Can you say with absolute certainty that the Jewish person walking around in Jerusalem didn't think that by doing good works they could be saved? Because that's the, that's the foundation of the reconstruction, right? It's simply not true because if you look up here on the slides, so Edras comes from the Apocrypha, which is the, 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 the writing of the Jewish people in between the New and the Old Testament. There were some other like uh, writings which come at the same time, and all of them show that the Jewish people did have a sense in which by doing good works, by doing the law, they would be saved. Okay, so just let me read some for you. For the righteous who have many works laid up with you shall receive their reward in consequence of their own deeds. For indeed, I will not concern myself about the fashioning of those who have sinned about their death, their judgment, their destruction. But I will rejoice over the creation of the righteous, over their pilgrimage also, and their salvation, and their receiving their reward. In the Psalms of Solomon, 
The one who receive, who does righteousness stores up life for himself with the Lord. And this thing called Baruch. Miracles, however, will appear at their own time to those who are saved by their works. And even within our Bible, next slide, you can see that in the words of uh, the Bible, it really reflects that there, there is the understanding by the Jewish people that they will be saved by the things that they do. So remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they receive their reward in full. And also in Ephesians chapter 2, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, even within the New Testament, it shows very clearly that Jewish people had these ideas of acts of righteousness, whereby doing acts or works of the law, they could be saved because they were righteous. So you can't do a reconstruction saying that every single Jewish person didn't think that they would be saved by doing the law or doing the good things. So, I want to go back to where we started from, right? Which is, uh, the, the last one, next slide. Okay, next one. Oh, okay, don't worry. Yeah, okay. Okay, next one. Yeah. Uh, click again. Okay. Okay, next one. Okay. So, Ultimately, there are wrong ways of reading the Bible. And there are many, many wrong ways of reading the Bible out there. We need to be aware of them and we need to read the Bible the right way. Because if you don't read the Bible the right way, it will lead you all over the place into believing that, well, you know, God is going to give me lots of money if I give God lots of money, that God wants me to go out and heal people and do miracles, that God wants me to... Uh, to be safe without repenting and changing in any way, uh, that somehow God doesn't care about how I live sexually or in terms of gender relations or even the cross of Jesus Christ. So, one of the, in conclusion, one of the dangers I think when we listen to a sermon like this is we just look outside and say, yeah, la, those people out there, they're terrible. They're all reading the Bible the wrong way. But I want to say that actually even for ourselves, we too have the temptation of making a shortcut and not actually going to God's word and asking ourselves, what is God really saying? Even if I'm preaching it, I might make the mistake. I might look at it and I'm not doing the, I'm not, I'm being shaped by the world, I'm shaped by my own thinking or shaped by my own ideas. And I might come to God's word and not actually humbly submit before it. So, what I want to really challenge all of us is, are there any ways in which we are reading the Bible wrongly? But I have, have there been times where we come to God's Word and we actually read our hopes and our wishes and our thoughts and our ideas into God's Word rather than humbly and trembling before God's Word and sitting under God's Word and saying, what is it really, really saying that I need to listen to? And I think that as we come to Isaiah 66, it was so important 
Because God was saying, look, you can worship me, you can, you can sacrifice animals, you can do all these things, but unless you hear my word, you sit under my word, you tremble under my word, you're, you obey my word, you will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. So I hope for all of us here, we will really take seriously and do the hard work of coming to God's word and to seek to really understand what is God saying, what is His intention, rather than to fill God's word with our own ideas or to allow some sort of historical reconstruction to change what God's word is saying or to limit it or to ignore it. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really pray for ourselves uh, that we would not read the Bible, your word, the wrong way, but rather we would come and sit under your word to tremble before your word, to humbly submit before your word, to do the hard work of asking ourselves, what is this passage really saying? To dig, to integrate, to read the rest of the chapter in the book and to see what you are saying to us. Dear Father, your word tells us that our hearts are deceitful and who can know it? And indeed, that is true. In so many ways, we we are deceitful, we deceive ourselves. But we pray with humility that we will come before you and that through your word you would instruct us and that we would unflinchingly uh, to come before your word and to accept your word even if it means difficulty in this world, even if it means changing our worldview, even if it means challenging our most cherished dreams. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.